I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What, does it mean, what did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 21, we read The End of History and the Last Man by Francis Fukuyama from 1992. Francis Fukuyama was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1952. His paternal grandfather fled Japan during the Russo-Japanese War in 1905 and started a shop on the West Coast before being interned during World War II. His father was a minister in the Congregational Church who received a doctorate in sociology from the University of Chicago and also taught religious studies. Fukuyama's mother was the daughter of the first president of Osaka City University. Fukuyama grew up in Manhattan as an only child. He had little contact with Japanese culture. He did not learn Japanese. His family moved to State College, Pennsylvania in 1967. Fukuyama studied classics at Cornell University and received a Ph.D. in political science from Harvard University in 1981. He began his career in the political science department of the Rand Corporation. During the Reagan administration, he served on the policy planning staff of the U.S. Department of State. He later taught at the Paul H. Nitza School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University and later at George Mason University School of Public Policy. He served as a member of the President's Council on Bioethics from 2001 to 2004. Fukuyama has written widely on issues of in development and international politics. His book, The End of History and the Last Man, we're reading today, has appeared in over 20 foreign editions. He's published five additional books, including a most recent work in 2018. Fukuyama is chairman of the editorial board of the American Interest, which he helped to found in 2005. He's a senior fellow at the John Hopkins Foreign Policy Institute and an on-resident fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's married to Laura Holmgren and has three children. So the origins of this book started with a, an article that Fukuyama had written a couple years before the book, in which he put forth the idea that maybe liberal democracy might constitute the endpoint of mankind's ideological evolution, he says, the final form of human government. Um, in reflection, he says... Liberal democracy remains the only coherent political aspiration that spans different regions and cultures around the globe. And the idea is that the ideal of democracy cannot be improved upon in terms of coming up with a better governing structure, a better way to govern. And some of these ideas come from Hegel, who viewed history as a single coherent evolutionary process that accounted for the experiences of all human beings, the, the entire human experience, basically an evolutionary process heading in the direction of progress. We're getting closer and closer to the ideal. Hegel said that the end of history would come when no further progress could be made because all the big questions had been settled, the big questions in politics and the big questions in morality and how uh, human beings could best flourish. And so Fukuyama starts this book with kind of the question of, you know, evaluating history to figure out has it ended? You know, have we reached that final point where 
no more progress can be made, uh, improve upon the lives of human beings in terms of government and allowing opportunity and equality. And so he starts with an evaluation of history. That is, is there a meaningful order to the broad sweep of human events? Have we reached the enlightenment hope that blind obedience to authority would be replaced by rational self-government, which all men are free and equal? Those are the questions that he asks uh, at the outset of the book. When I first started reading this, I mean, there were a couple of thoughts that occurred to me. I mean, the, the title itself uses history in a way that we usually don't use the word history. So it kind of wrong-footed me at the idea that history would, would end and that, you know, that the idea that there were no more meaningful conflicts was, I don't know. I, I, I didn't go into it with a particularly favorable outlook. And also the idea that we're going in a direction rather than just things happening. It always struck me as more of a progressive idea, even though this, as I came to read it, is a fairly, I would say, deeply conservative book. And if that if that seems weird to any of you listeners, the Hegelian outlook on 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 history and human development, I, I have to say he Fukuyama explains it in a way that made it make a lot more sense to me than anything I'd read before. When I came across Hegel in college, it always just made my head hurt. And yeah. This, I don't know the way Fukuyama explains it. He, he's just a, he's a good writer, and he makes a philosophy. I, I feel a little more accessible than whenever I, or maybe I'm just twenty years older and can handle these thoughts in a way that you know the eighteen, nineteen-year-old me didn't really care to. But there's this idea of you know that that history is a process, a progress at all. Some people would put that on the progressive side of things, but I think Fukuyama mm -hmm. takes it in a distinctly conservative direction. Yeah, and we're familiar with this idea because we even talked about this on another podcast that the Martin Luther King quote where he says, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you that I've always viewed this kind of as a progressive idea, the idea that history is kind of leading in a direction in a particular place and that progress will reach you know, some pinnacle or you could view it from kind of a, a religious standpoint that, you know, history is moving in a direction that it's sort of the unfolding of God's will. I think maybe we get this from Edmund Burke, the, mm. the world and, and our participation in it is just a manifestation of God's will as it unfolds. And that ultimately, you know, it'll end with the rapture and God, you know, burning the evil people. and maybe this way of explaining it seems different too, because usually what we hear is the cheap version, which is some politician saying that, you know, we're progressing toward the goal, that goal being whatever he wants the legislature to pass in the next session. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's always, it's sort of like, yeah, the goal is the thing that I like, which is a fairly specific issue that is on the far left right now, where I think this is more of a, like a backward looking, looking at where we've, the different, forms of government we've tried over the millennia mm -hmm. since recorded history began and really analyzing it more from a historian's perspective and saying how did these things work out which one is rising which one is falling rather than saying where do i want to get how do we get there and that's progress you know right, so right, maybe yeah. it, it, it this is a more conservative take on the question of progress itself Right. Yeah. That's interesting. And it's also interesting that he doesn't really dive into the question of technology because I think that's an area where we'd all kind of agree that history is moving in a certain direction of like more technological process. But so we have to ask ourselves and he Fukuyama does here whether or not our 
experience and understanding of history really does demonstrate a, a meaningful sweep of human events moving in a, in a certain direction. And he says, instead of human history leading in a single direction, there seemed to be as many goals as there were peoples with liberal democracy having no particular privilege. In other words, it's kind of like, as we look back, it may not seem like actually we're heading in one direction that mm. in fact, different people are heading in different directions, but there is some, there, there is some common threads. He'll start by, by explaining what he calls our, our pessimism about actual progress. Our own experience of history has taught us that the future is more likely than not to contain new and unimagined evils from dictatorship to genocide, to banal consumerism. The pessimism of the present about the possibility of progress in history was born out of two separate crises versus crises of the 20th century politics, which killed tens of millions of people and forced hundreds of millions to live under new and more brutal forms of slavery. Yeah, definitely a good reason for pessimism, having confronted all of that. And we've read several books published uh, right after World War II. And, you know, this is obviously a few decades later. But, I mean, I I don't know that, that some of our authors would have necessarily said, like, oh, we're, we've almost achieved full human enlightenment. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I mean, Hayek writing in, in 44 had a definitely darker view of the trends of history. I mean, as even as it looked, I mean, by the time his book came out, we were turning the corner on, on fascism, but communism was still coming on strong. And yeah, I, you know, it's definitely, I mean, Rand too, quite a few of our authors have just looked yeah, at Rand Strauss, the growing thread of different kinds of totalitarianism is just, you know, a serious existential threat to liberal democracy, which it, it certainly must've seemed. Fukuyama kind of takes up that, history and sees the change coming not long after that in the the 70s as i think some of the militaristic states it's hard to know what to call them all they're quasi-fascist sort of rule by military juntas or dictators that weren't communist but they definitely weren't democratic places Mm -hmm. like spain portugal greece uh, i think he might mention argentina Mm -hmm. uh, and how those regimes started to fall away peacefully and transition into democracies. I don't know. I hadn't thought of it that way because we usually just, in my mind, it's like the Cold War and then that's over. Yeah. You know, but there was this change already happening in the 70s, you know, as some of these countries that had been under unfree regimes since at least the Second World War started to, was as he said, they lost confidence in themselves and their system. And that's mm-hmm. why the change to liberal democracy came uh, quickly and, and peacefully in in a way that you wouldn't expect. I mean, you know, you're dealing with a military regime in some country. The people demand democracy. Uh, I mean, it, in my mind, I know what's going to happen. Nothing good. You know, it's yeah. the guys with all the guys who came to office because they're the ones with all the guns and tanks aren't going to just leave it. But a lot of them did. And uh, it seemed like even they, by the end, were looking at the system and saying, uh, this doesn't make sense. This can't. This can't endure. Partly, maybe because it has no principle behind it, other than being in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was an interesting way of categorizing those pre-80s changes in like, increasing freedom and increasing liberal democracy around the world. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the on the upside. On the downside, we still have 
you know, genocides perpetrated by totalitarian regimes that, mm-hmm. as he said, are made possible by modernity itself. In other words, like he's, he's pointing out that we may have advanced technologically and that's, those are modern, those are improvements brought to us by modernity and enlightenment and science. But has human behavior really changed? We still fight. We still kill one another. It's just that now we can do it on a mass scale. And he says, to defend themselves, liberal democracies adopted military strategies like the bombing of Dresden or Hiroshima that in earlier ages would have been called genocide. That really jumped out at me because it it really made me think, you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that in prior times, you would have, you know, thrown spears and arrows. But at this point, in order to stop the onslaught, the march of, of what was really, you know, evil militaristic, uh, countries. Mm. Well, we had to adopt those same strategies and, and, uh, dropping two atomic bombs. So it's kind of like, he says, if such events could happen in Germany, why not in any advanced country? This just really reminded me of a book that I hope we pick up at some point. Um, Hannah Arendt was this, Oh, yeah. Jewish philosopher who wrote a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem. Eichmann being the, he was kind of the, one of the, the top um, Nazi officials that governed uh, logistics. And what we're talking about is the logistics of moving Jews from their homes, pulling them out of their neighborhoods and their homes, and then the logistics of getting them on the trains and moving them to the concentration camps. And kind of the book is about his, his trial in, he was captured and he was tried in Israel and the, the book is a kind of a play by play of the, of the trial, but also takes up this bigger question of like, what kind of a human being behaves this way? What kind of a human being would spend his waking hours, wake up early to figure out how to um, murder people on a mass scale. And I don't want to spoil the book, but you know, basically the conclusion she came to is this guy was just, waking up trying in the morning he woke up early so that he and, and worked hard so that he could impress his bosses you know is it is that banal you know just a guy who was unremarkable and kind of dumb uh, but you know he was doing everything he could to like move up the chain as if he was in any any corporation and you know it's just really terrifying to read something like that because you're like you want desperately for this guy to be pure evil. And I'm not saying he was good. I mean, like he's, no, but it, I see what you mean. It's sort of, a, you know, you, yeah, you want this to be an exception to the average human and yeah. looking at somebody who does despicable acts and seeing that he's, you know, it's not, he's not a particularly evil person. He's just a person who willingly accepted an evil system. It's, right. Yeah. And so Fukuyama says the experience of the 20th century has actually made highly problematic the claims of progress on the basis of science and technology, because while there's some good notes that you, that that you'd mentioned, there's a lot of bad stuff too. And it really, is it any better than the tribalism of before, you know, except that now we have much more sophisticated weapons and a much better ability to, to slaughter one another. For the ability of technology to better human life is critically dependent on a parallel moral progress in man, he says. Otherwise, the power of technology will simply be turned to evil purposes. Has there been a a parallel 
moral progress in man. I mean, this is the topic of many of our books because Mm -hmm. the other crisis that he points out here, Fukuyama, not just the crisis of humans murdering one another, but the second crisis is what he calls the intellectual crisis of Western rationalism because it, uh, what we've left, he says, left liberal democracy without the intellectual resources with which to defend itself. And this goes back to many conversations we've had. Strauss at the top of that list and Weaver, basically like, do we have a foundation to stand on in order to say that evil is evil and good is good? You know, with this this uh, s- sweeping, you know, torrent of, of uh, relativism. Do we have do we have any grounding to stand on and say no? Actually, Holocaust is bad, and the problem is, while at the same time our technology is advancing and our ability to destroy one another is, you know, rapidly advances, at the same time our our moral footing, our moral grounding, is just chipped and just and and knocked out from underneath us. And so, rather than a parallel moral progress, you're basically moving in two different directions. Yeah, and that's and I think. He, he attributes that in part to the the triumph of liberalism is that it in enshrining tolerance as a virtue i think we uh, it crowds out other virtues in our minds and it becomes more important to be tolerant than to may have good judgment mm-hmm. so while this is a, a good thing that we can live in a society where we accept that people live their lives different from we do and different from our families when that becomes the only virtue, then really we are all we we forget what virtue itself even is. And yeah, and as you say, yeah. how can how can you how can you point out that something's wrong if you can't even say what's right? Exactly. Yeah. So this is, yeah, I mean, this is a serious problem of of liberal democracy. And so, if you can't have a grounding for morality, if you're not moving in a direction of becoming more moral, instead moving in a direction of you know, let's just tolerate one another, um, which is good. I mean, we we want uh, tolerance in our society, but if it leads to a radical relativism in which we can't even say this is better than that, you know, this behavior is worse or less acceptable than, than this be- other behavior, well, then we're in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. So he also attacks kind of the idea he says the typically American idea that it's possible to democratize any country anywhere too, <laughs> which I found really funny because he was a huge supporter of the Iraq war at first. And basically that was the rationale. Well, I mean, WMD, mm-hmm. but I mean, the broader rationale was to spread democracy around the world. Yeah. It was this, this Neo Wilsonian thing they called on briefly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the idea that he says of democratic center in the third world, has always been merely a trap and an illusion. And I was, I just, that made me chuckle because like you wrote this in 92 and then in 2003 you supported the Iraq war um, full, uh, full-throated because we do in America, I, I think that's true. We do have this strong optimism and we recognize how lucky and blessed we are to live in a free society like this and then extrapolate and it makes sense, you know, uh, it's pretty, it's a pretty rational extrapolation to say other people would want it to. And yeah, it's, it's not, it's not that unreasonable. And we always just take it a little too far. Yeah. But instead he says, experience has taught us that the world is divided between the totalitarian 
totalitarianisms on the right and on the left. So on the right would be authoritarian states and on the left would be communist uh, totalitarianism, socialism. So that's what he does in chapters two and three. So in chapter two, he talks about the, the right side of the of totalitarian uh, tendencies, and that's the authoritarian state. He says fascism was not a universal doctrine like liberalism or communism insofar as it denied the existence of a common humanity or equality of human rights. And this is a, this is a kind of a question that he's going to get into more deeply and that we'll pick up on probably at the end of today, but then for our next episode, we'll dive in more deeply the real question of universal equality and what, what that means and how it actually cashes out. But for fascism, it differs from liberalism and communism because the, the latter two are trying to bring greater equality to everyone where fascism, so the authoritarian side um, uh, on the right, is not as committed to a common humanity or equality of human rights. Instead, it's sort of a, he says, power and will extolled over reason and equality. So basically like the show of force and the it's sort of an us versus them on steroids. So have we seen, we've seen, we obviously saw that with, with uh, Nazi Germany, but on a lesser scale, do you think we've seen that at all? Oh, I mean, since then? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a, it's a thing. Yeah. It's nationalism gone wild. I think there are elements of that in most countries even whether they be a communist country like China, this, this exists. I mean, there's this nationalist element that they're always trying to control, but also keep down because it contradicts a lot of their own socialist system. But then also they want to use that fervor of the people and just, you know, kind of direct it a different way. And we also, I mean, we get it in, in Western democracies too. I mean, there's people are not unmindful of the fact that they belong, they live, belong to a nation. And, mm-hmm some of that is good. I mean, that's, we elect our leaders to lead the American people, not the world. You know, we, we elect people to look out for the citizens of this country, not for, of every country. And it doesn't mean going around conquering things or bombing things necessarily, but it does mean that you should be focused one way or the other. So, I mean, these, that, and, and he, he talks about that as a part of the, what's strange about the preservation of liberal democracy is that it's a rational system, but it requires some irrational impulses to keep it in power. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of like we're grafting those tribalist impulses onto defense of democratic norms, which is weird because the people who came up with them, you know, when we're talking about Locke and Jefferson and, and Hobbes and, you know, they're, these are enlightenment figures. I mean, or pre enlightenment, you know, they're, coming at this reason, like why we have a democratic system at all is because it's the most reasonable enlightened system. And, you know, it's, it's fair consent of the governed. Mm -hmm. But when we were fighting fascism or communism in the cold war, I mean, there were even people weren't joining that fight for purely rational reasons. They were saying, because this is our system and we'll defend it. It, it, you know, it, it's, it's funny because you know, but it, it, this the irrational attachment to to rationalism is uh, almost. I think he says it's necessary to to preserve this government because 
that's the only way you can really, if you don't have that, then people won't defend it and it can easily be swept aside by these uh, other stronger, more forceful ideologies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this goes to a conversation we've had before about patriotism. Sort of a conservative value is patriotism and we know on the left that they they view that with scorn and disdain. Mm -hmm. But to your point, like some degree of patriotism is actually very valuable, you know, to build a national cohesion and, and help people feel like they're in a community. But of course, you know, that patriotism and alternate, you know, nationalism can get out of hand. And what we're really talking about here again is Fukuyama's evaluation of is history marching towards liberal democracy is liberal democracy, the end. And he's going to look at fascism or, or let's let, instead of call it fascism, we'll just call it authoritarianism on the right. Is that a, is that a, a rival system? I mean, is it, it's, it's been, uh, it's been uh, cast aside, but you see in Russia, you know, they're right back to it. You know, they, they tried mm -hmm. the liberal democracy thing. Um, it didn't go to their liking and it's not just because Putin is a is a dictator. I mean, that's that's part of it. But I mean, he was able to rise to power because there is a, a strain and a you know a part of the, their culture that just wants to have a strong leader. <laughs> I think you you also get this problem of uh, it seems like the problem there was in, in Weimar Germany where there's different factions who all want to run the thing. And, you know, some of them don't care about means. Just do it. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, you get the communists came out with their street gangs, you know, around election day and the fascists countered with their street gangs and they have brawls in the streets. But the, the liberal Democrats viewed this as an unjust way of, you know, influencing voters. So they didn't do it. And then you get this sort of the two extremes fighting each other. And you have the same in, in Spain where the, before their civil war, everyone was just gravitating to the edges and the liberals just kind of got pushed aside because mm -hmm. they weren't willing to engage in things that they saw as uh, unjust ways of coming into government or influencing people. And then maybe World War II was kind of when the West, the, the remaining liberal democracies said, no, we've, we've got to fight for this. And we did. And it's through the Cold War we did because we realized, you know, that maybe we would love a a world where you could just talk reasonably to people and they'd all say, Yeah, let's let's just vote on stuff. Let's not, you know, let's mm -hmm. not oppress people anymore. But that doesn't always happen and the people who refuse to go along are the ones with the power. So that I think kinda of, that's what I thought of also when we tied this um irrational means of preserving a rational system is that if you don't have that, if you just, all you have is ivory tower philosophizing, you, there's a good chance you're going to get run over and maybe less so here in America because we do have a long tradition of not doing that and having free elections and having, you know, liberty and, and preserving our rights. But in other countries like Russia, you know, they gave it a shot. Yeltsin was committed to democracy, but it didn't take much for somebody to roll the system mm -hmm. after he died. Yeah. That, that, that irrationality idea that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. I think that 
we use Russia as an example and some other, you know, sort of dictatorships uh, on the right. Those are the more extreme examples. But we even in America, there is just this tendency. It's almost like moth to a flame sometimes of maybe maybe it's just a cyclical I had a human desire to sort of say, you know, us versus them. Like, let's, no, let's stand for ourselves. And you do, and you get this. Um, I think sometimes you see it in the party out of power where they say, you know, when we get in, we're just going to ram our ideas through. Yeah. Because it's got to get done. Enough of these checks and balances. But it's, it's more dangerous when you see the party in power doing it. And that, that does happen sometimes. I mean, because sometimes winning. And maybe that's the, the irrational, the tribalism, yeah. the, the neo-romanticism. We're just going to win. We're going to own the libs. Yeah. That's it. You know, and our ideas are important. Who cares how we get them done? Yeah, yeah. That is, I think, what turns a lot of constitutional conservatives off to the some of those populist strains mm-hmm. on the right now. But it it's it's there. I, mean, I don't know if that can be suppressed. And I think we'll probably get into that more when we talk about human motivations maybe next week with Nietzsche and and some of the yeah things Fukuyama discusses in that respect but there's yeah the desire I mean American greatness is something that people feel and even even I feel I, I want America to be great mm-hmm. um, what does that mean uh, that's when people start to disagree of course but as a slogan yeah it does sound good yeah I mean why should why should we the greatest country on earth not be great but you know what do you have to do to get it what does greatness mean does it mean overthrowing our our you know finely wrought system of federalism and checks and balances because that doesn't always sound like greatness that sounds like instructions mm-hmm. but it is, it is in part it is a part of what made us great of course and that yeah, it's it, definitely there's there's that tension i don't I'm, i think a lot of what we've spent discussing over the past year is how to resolve that yeah yeah, and he, Fukuyama, dives into this question. We'll talk about definitely next time that I just found so fascinating of question of recognition, which we won't get into now. But is there a need, a, a desire on the part of many, if not all humans, to demonstrate that you're better than? And that's kind of where this strain comes from, I think, on the right. Like, no, America, we're the best. You know, the greatest country on earth. <laughs> you know, we destroy every other country in the Olympics every, you know, every four years. And- yeah. And that, that example too, is I think <laughs> what we saw, I mean, as we were growing up, that, that was European nationalism. It was like the world cup and the Olympics, you know, mm. it was the only, the only time you ever see Germans wave their flag is <laughs> the world cup. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I think that get, that maybe made us think that the world wars and everything like came along with that had really just killed off the nationalist impulse in Europe because they saw the evil side of nationalism and what it could do mm-hmm. and like enough of that. But as you see the populist uprisings that are coming electorally so far, but in Europe, it's not dead and people have not forgotten their nation mm-hmm. and some of the grosser parts of it are coming out too. So, I mean, maybe that kind of ties into is a, Fukuyama talks about the the way the communists dominated Eastern Europe for several generations. And communism, like fascism and some of those type systems, had this idea that they were going to change mankind itself. They were going to make the new, the new Soviet man. Mm-hmm. 
So this is the left side of the ledger. Sorry, sorry to cut you off, but yes, but, uh, we were just talking about the right side of the ledger: authoritarianism, fascism. Now this is the left side of the ledger, different the, the left uh, direction. The, Most, yeah, right. The because the, the the authoritarians most, mostly just want to be in charge. They were more like the old school tyrants, like absolute monarchs who didn't particularly care to change the way you thought as long as you behaved yourself. But yeah, on the left, you wanted to really change human behavior. And part of that was stamping out nationalism, but also part of it was just making us into this thing, this Marxist ideal mm -hmm. that, you know, we would not care about any of the things that humans have traditionally cared about. But boy, as soon as the Soviet tanks left, everyone voted for democracy. Yeah, so it, right. it, it was, it was amazing that th these decades of indoctrination did nothing. So that part's inspiring because yeah. the good parts of human nature were not destroyed by totalitarianism. But then the parts you were talking about before, the part where we do unspeakable evils to each other, is it also possible to stamp that out? Mm -hmm. I, I, maybe not. Yeah. And well, to your point, the, he says the communists were utterly ineffective at creating a new man, a new Soviet man or a new Maoist man or a Cuban or you know, Vietnamese, like they weren't able to remake humans, you know, by s starting at square one, by, uh, indoctrinating from, from birth, like people ended up still wanting to think for themselves. And he says the most fundamental failure of, uh, a leftist totalitarian regimes, communism was the failure to control thought. Yeah, we pretty much see that. So this, this experiment to destroy civil society in its entirety destroy the society's fabric that's you know other books we've read touched on this quest for community family religion he says even historical memory and language those are the targets of the left to try to destroy those because we don't want any thinking for yourself because once you start thinking for yourself well then as authoritarians know well actually some people want to be better at things than others <laughs> and yeah uh, i'll go ahead yeah, they, I mean, they, they, they viewed humanity as a blank slate that they could, given enough political power, overwrite with the Marxist vision of what humans should be. And that, that's kind of why I group uh, Ayn Rand into the utopians rather than conservatives, because she also viewed mankind as a, black, a blank slate mm -hmm, over yeah. which her objectivist philosophy could be written if only we, you know, changed the laws and made things, you know, and, and taught these ideas. And I think the, uh, the lessons of history that Fukuyama points out in his overview of 20th century humanity is that there's something in us to start with. And it doesn't matter if you're raised under a, a communist or a liberal Democrat or a fascist or a military dictator. It, there are certain things people want. And mm -hmm. yet, like you said, we'll get into that next week what are those things and how should we organize government around them? Yeah. So then in chapter four, he takes up another possibility. So we've, we've talked about authoritarianism on the right, totalitarian, you know, communism, socialism on the left, the reasons that people want to move in those directions. I mean, they're legitimate, but you know, neither one is going to satisfy. But then another one is, uh, Islam. He says, Islam constitutes a rival system with its own code of morality and political justice. But he says Islam has virtually no appeal outside of culturally Islamic areas. <laughs> and 
and uh, in fact can't even challenge liberal democracy on its own territory yeah that that one made me think i'm not sure if that's true i think it's mostly true i mean since 92 when he wrote this we haven't really seen has there been a growth in islamism outside of its traditional boundaries and you could say turkey maybe is going that way when they had once been more democratic but i'm not sure that shift is permanent what Mm -hmm. do you think well even the example of turkey is an instance of you know islam maybe get taking a a renewed start in a culturally islamic area you know Mm -hmm. yeah so i think i i mean this is an empirical question and maybe you and i are not qualified to answer but I don't see much clamoring or desire to become, to follow Islam in non-Islamic countries. Yeah. You don't have whole nations converting because I think that's, that would have to be part of it. You know, it's not just that you'd be setting up a political system like theirs because they're an Islamic Islamicist political position requires the Muslim religion too. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we don't see whole countries converting to anything these days. You see, if anything, religion falling away in some countries that had it once. But yeah, it, yeah there's not this uh, sort of conquest by Islam of non-Islamic areas mm-hmm. as there was a thousand years ago. So I think that's right. I think it is. There are, there are natural boundaries that have been developed. And so why does Fukuyama s- single out Islam? Well, as I think we'll talk about next time, something that Nietzsche really focuses on uh, too, is that the idea of liberal democracy and really uh, equality in general really is a, an outgrowth of Christian thinking. And you can contrast that with Islam. So he says part of the reason for the current fundamentalist revival in, in Islam, remember he wrote this in 1992, mm-hmm. which was before the Kobar Tower bombing and well before 9-11 um, situation. He says part of the reason for the current fundamentalist revival is the strength of a, the perceived threat from liberal Western values to traditional, to traditional Islamic societies. In other words, it's not that it, Islam is not only not spreading beyond its own borders, it's also become a threat within its borders because Western values have tremendous appeal to people. I mean, maybe not going all the way as we've talked about with, uh, you know, Russia or so forth, but, but just in general, like having, having women's rights and having an ability to have a say in your, in your government and mm-hmm. how you're governed. Yeah. And I, I thought one, one point he made here is too, that even in non-democratic countries, they, the leaders pretend to be democratic, you know, they have fake elections like Russia mm-hmm. does. Oh yeah. Sure. Which, I mean, that that really shows to me how much democracy appeals to the average human is that even in places that aren't democratic, they're, they're, they're pretending to be democratic and the people they know, you know, but it's, it's sort of a, like a fig leaf of popular sovereignty over the, what's really just totalitarianism, but it, you wouldn't, it wouldn't bother to like, we don't, we don't bother to fake having another system. You know, so they, they, it's almost admitting, yeah, people want liberal democracy. We're not going to give it to them, but we're going to pretend. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 I think that adds to his thesis. Right. So is liberalism the best? He says, we cannot picture a world that is essentially different and at the same time better. Now, is that true? 
I think it is. I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, wondering like what could possibly be better. Of course, I'm, I'm not that smart of a guy. So other people who are much smarter could come up with thoughts, but be very difficult because <laughs> you could imagine a, uh, an authoritarian government, authoritarian regime, or, you know, even a monarchy where you had a benevolent, you know, dictator, <laughs> benevolent mm-hmm. monarch that, uh, that allowed, but could you even allow more freedom than what we currently already have? I mean, it's, it's tough to picture. Yeah. I think you could do it for a little while. Um, and yeah, this is something I think everyone thinks about when you see a, a problem in democracy and you say, well, I don't know. There's got, maybe there's a better way, but every other way. Yeah. I mean, they all depend on one person being really good mm-hmm. and that, that never lasts either that person is corrupted by his power or even if you get this amazing dictator who's who loves freedom <laughs> as long as you know he gets to stay in charge and i've never seen that happen but if it does happen then then when he dies what happens you know it it's a system all these systems are only good if the men ruling them are good and i think that was one of the part of the wisdom of our founding fathers is they knew that that was not a basis for a yeah. just system because there will mm-hmm. always be men with bad ideas or power hungry men, people who don't care about those virtues and liberties that, that they cared about. So you set up a system where that play that off each other and, and preserve freedom that way. So yeah, I, I, I think he's right. It's hard for maybe we grew up in this system, so it does seem natural to us, but I still can't think of a different way that would be better freer and and uh, have greater popular support Mm -hmm. on the other hand he says some less reflective ages also thought of themselves as the best and in particular hegel said that you know germany in his day which was you know in the 18th century i believe was the high water mark of of history so Mm -hmm. uh you know, to your point, like maybe we uh, overestimate because of our bias for our, our current era. Yeah. And I, I mean, I tried, when I was reading it, I tried to, it's hard to fight against that because it's, it's how we're brought up, but I couldn't think of anything. I, I've never been able to think of a system that would actually work better over the long term than liberal democracy. It's strange that that makes this a conservative book because that didn't well, used yeah. to be a particularly yeah. conservative principle. I mean, any more than it was a liberal principle. Mm-hmm. But it's, this is now an idea of the right, which is just maybe shows the strangeness of the left these days. So he ends these chapters by saying, if we are now at a point where we cannot imagine a world substantially different from our own, in which there is no apparent or obvious way in which the future will represent a fundamental improvement over our current order, then we must also take into consideration the possibility that history itself might be at an end. That's kind of a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is a, as good a place as any, I think, to close our discussion of part one. We're going to have a part two for this book because I think, Kyle, you would agree that there's just so much excellent material here. And mm. In fact, the best material is still to come. So he's he's put out that kind of bold uh, statement that, well, maybe 
maybe we have reached the end. And then he's going to spend some other chapters talking about, well, maybe, maybe we haven't actually after all. <laughs> and so he's, we're going to dive into this, this really interesting question of the human innate uh, need for recognition and what he calls thymos, which is kind of an innate human sense of justice. And I think that's what we'll talk about next time. You have, you have any final thoughts for today's discussion? No, I think, I think you nailed it. Um, we've seen, we've set it up and then next, next week we'll get into, I think some really interesting discussions of why society is organized the way it is, what people want out of their government and of their society. And these are definitely ideas worth thinking about. So stay tuned. Cool. All right. Catch us next time.